Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, Google abandons its assault on news paywalls. What do the new arrangements mean for the FT and the Times? Is the alternative media in a guerrilla war with the mainstream? Nick Robinson thinks so. Is he right? Also on the show, ITV aims for Newsnight viewers. Channel 4 edges closer to finding a new Jay Hunt. Why Claire Balding created a saga for saga. And in the media quiz, we welcome the return of Celeb Dak. It's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me today is the executive editor for Business Insider UK, Jake Cantor, friend of the show. Hello, Jake. And making her media podcast debut... It's Rebecca Gilly. Hi. You're a writer for The Week Online. Yes. But you are perhaps best known for your 2011 appearance on University Challenge. Oh, come on. Where did you dig that up from? <laughs> is it on YouTube? Can we watch it? Um, it's actually not on YouTube, but there is a YouTube video where uh, they put our team on the bottom and the Stone Roses on the top and made it look like their press conference answers were answers to the questions. So I am in a, in a mildly viral video. How was Paxo? You know, he was really, really nice, although he laughed at us for guessing Virginia Woolf for a photo, and it turned out to be her sister. He was So he was just judging you for having jumped to such an Yeah, it was horrifying. Obviously, we weren't going to say an anything. Yeah, yeah, but you got it right. Well, there you are, Jake. You're with a winner. I say you're a winner. How did you do? Oh, we, we got to the semi-finals, so okay. almost You're with a, a loser, but I a good loser. I can't claim University Challenge semi-final, no, unfortunately. Exactly, yeah. Have you met Paxo? No, I'd like to. How has that never happened? <laughs> We all want to see that interview. Party conference season at the moment, though, Jake. You must be delighted with that. What was your your media highlight? There was an embarrassment of riches. Well, we're still sort of recovering from Wednesday, really. Yeah. BI sent two reporters up to Manchester. I think everyone was a bit taken aback by what happened during Theresa May's speech. Particularly interesting with Lee Nelson. I mean, he's a he's a divisive character, isn't he? Some people absolutely Simon Brodkin, him. the name of the comedian. Yes, Lee Nelson, yes. the character he wasn't yes, playing then. Of course, it wasn't clear who he was playing then. He's ca- he's kind of known as Lee Nelson, isn't yeah, he? But he is. Yeah, that's his, in the same way that Sasha was known as Ali G for a long time. Yeah. So, but uh, but yeah. yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's a uh, he's a divisive figure, isn't he? But I I like well, him. He's not funny. I think it's not funny. Well, <laughs> really, they are. We've just illustrated it. But I think he's fantastic at you know creating these sort of simple metaphors, which work brilliantly on front pages. 
yesterday was a great example with the P45, and then Sepp Blatter was genius with the showering in cash. Yeah, that was actually quite good. <laughs> the thing is, though, Rebecca, actually trying to pick that visual image, I mean, I actually genuinely feel sorry for the Prime Minister because no one's talking about the detail of the speech. But I mean, actually, as a digital journalist, you've got three sort of Twitter-ready things there, haven't you? You've got the letters falling off the wall, Fawlty Towers style. You've got the P45, and you've got the coughing. Yeah, I mean, it was great. Um, I was doing a social shift yesterday so one of our stories for the day was Twitter reacts to Theresa May's speech which was really an embarrassment of riches it was kind of hard to keep it limited although we did have a discussion this morning we were talking in the office about what would you do should she have taken the P45 or not because obviously in a kind of thick of it way it gave the photographers lots of opportunities to get pictures of her holding a P45 but then what else do you do when someone's waving something in your face when you're trying to make a speech she kind of took it like a angry headmistress taking something off someone in assembly (laughs) I've got an idea call your security guards there was no way to win it. And if she'd have done it Trump style and leapt on the bloke and punched him in the face, I still think that would have been problematic. OK, let's uh, start our media news of the week with Google, who have ditched their first click-free strategy. Now, from this week, publishers won't have to give away free articles to be featured in Google search results. Rebecca, explain this, because a lot of people, I think, don't even realise this policy exists. They just type into Google News and they expect to see the most relevant search result first, even if it is behind a paywall. Yeah, so the way that it worked was when you had your Google search results, if you clicked on an article that came from a publication with a paywall, you could see the first three clicks from that. So the first three clicks through from a search result, you could see beyond the paywall. If you tried to click on anything else on the website, then you would get the paywall. Mm. Publishers hated this because people are getting too much free content, basically. So Google have now shifted their stance and they're going to what's called flexible sampling, which means the publishers themselves can choose how much free content you can see, if any. I mean, it seems insane to me that it was ever Google's decision to tell a publisher that they should be giving their stuff away for free. I mean, their whole mission was about making the web searchable. And if that includes paywalled content, then so be it, surely. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty extraordinary power grab, I'd guess. Uh, it's bad news for anyone who Googles FT headlines and uh, consumes the <laughs> Financial Times that way, which is, I'm not saying I do that, but, you know, sure. <laughs> it hands back power to the publishers, and that's the way it should be. It's part of ongoing grumpiness with Facebook and Google. Indeed, Press Gazette's got a campaign, and they say that uh, they're trying to stop these two monoliths destroying journalism and this is a step in the right direction for me what will be interesting to see is whether this spurs any other publishers into erecting paywalls and i'm thinking specifically of the guardian which whenever you're on the website these days you always see the begging bowl it feels more apparent than ever and with this step from google you sort of wonder whether they might be tempted to erect that paywall. And indeed, uh, I spoke to the chief executive, David Pempsall, last year, and he did not rule out any such action. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be a reluctance by some publishers to admit they may have got it wrong, and actually, worse, Murdoch might have got it right, doesn't there, Rebecca? Because the truth is, there was a time where you could pay for a website through advertising, just. Mm. But digital advertising just isn't worth what it used to be. Yeah, and I mean, that Google's kind of official explanation behind the change is that, you know, they're recognising this is a difficult time for digital journalism and that it's better for them to have more subscriptions because Google relies on publishers to provide content, so Google needs to support publishers in getting the revenue that they need. Although I would say that there's probably the ulterior motive is subscriptions are great from Google's perspective because if you've got a subscription, your behaviour is so much more predictable. You know, if you've got a subscription, obviously you're going to go to time and time again to that website. You're not going to just look for, well, I, you know, I can't access that one. It's behind a paywall, so I'll choose one of a dozen 
other sources. So it works for Google. I mean, they're always keen to know more about what you're doing, and this this would make it much easier. And what do we think it means for your respective businesses? You can be polite and decline to answer this in detail if you want. But for Business Insider, Jake, I mean, obviously your business model is about giving away content for free and getting as many people as possible to put their eyeballs on your pages. So does it worry you that, I don't know, the Times, for example, might be moving up the rankings? Not particularly. I would back our content. We serve a particular audience. It's a very different audience to the Times. The brand recognition that we have with Google is increasing all the time, so I'd be confident and back ourselves in, in that situation. And for you, Rebecca, I mean, with the week, I guess the point is to actually get people to subscribe to the magazine, ultimately. Yes. Um, so a lot, a lot of subscriptions to the magazine do come through the website. So in a way, we are pushing that form of subscription. The online version is, you know, kind of almost a gateway to that. So it makes sense to keep it free. I mean, there has been discussions before about a soft paywall or something like that. But I think you have to be a certain size of organization to do that. We're a relatively small team, you know, somewhere like the Times that can take that risk. They've been pioneering that. And I think if it does become more normalized to hide content behind a paywall, then that's probably a discussion that we'll end up having again. Do either of you as individuals actually pay for your news in any way, anywhere? I know I use our company account. So I can't say that I wouldn't pay for it if I didn't have access to it through yeah, work. I think I would echo that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's so interesting, no. isn't it? Yeah. We're both journalists and we don't pay for news. So I pay for a time subscription, actually, so that I get the weekend paper edition and I can look at the website. So the paywall did work for me from that point of view. Yeah. I, I pay for nothing else. considered purchasing the Slate Plus membership so I could read the extra Dear Prudence questions, but then I realised if, <laughs> if you click on it and then hit the X button really quickly, you can, you can read when, the When I do pay for news, it's I pay for a print product. For me, you still can't beat that. And if, I wanna, if I'm going to get rid of some cash from my pocket, it's always for a print product. Yeah, you see, but are you more likely, I wonder, to buy the FT or the Times than the Guardian because you know everything in the Guardian's online for free? Because that's kind of how I think about it a bit now. I'm more naturally a Guardian reader, but I'm more likely to buy the FT. I think that's fair, yeah. yeah. I, I do this out by the Sunday Times. I get private eye. There we go. Well, of course, both of you, I assume, of course, are donors to the media podcast as well. So that's fully voluntary. We've had a couple of stories from the world of fake news this week as well. The BBC's Nick Robinson gave a lecture. It was the inaugural Steve Hewlett Memorial Lecture, in fact, wasn't it, last Thursday, where he said that the alternative media are waging a guerrilla war on traditional media. So, Rebecca, who was he talking about by alternative media? Well, he made a big uh, push to target sites across the board. So you're talking about Westminster, Canary, and he mentioned New European as well. So he did try to take aim at everyone equally, which classically, an echo of the wider debate about the BBC, has attracted ire from all sides. So because he was saying that a site like Westminster or even the New European newspaper mm. is intrinsically more problematic than a tabloid that runs stories that may have a you know shady relationship with the truth. Yes, and I think one of the big reasons for that is because there is a certain level of scepticism around the tabloids. I think probably most people who read them don't necessarily think that everything in them is true, whereas the alternative news sites and the blogs do tend to attract a more rabid fan base. You know, they are sharing and liking that content and they obviously are passionately believing it and anything that reinforces their existing worldview. And actually, Nick Robinson did have this gift of a story happen this week, didn't he, Jake, in the form of the Canary reporting about Laura Koonsberg? <laughs> well, they said that she was a, a speaker at the Tory conference, when in fact she was just an invited speaker and uh, never accepted the invitation and therefore never actually got up on stage at the Tory conference. And they ran a piece just destroying her and saying this is a, a problem with BBC impartiality, she's a Tory... Yeah, it was completely insidious and cynical and they had to change their version after it was pointed out by Jim Waterson, among others, that it was 
inaccurate. <laughs> I think there is a sort of a slightly corrosive agenda against the, the, the so-called mainstream media. But I think politicians don't help. They create a sort of permissive environment for this kind of journalism, the, the guerrilla journalism that uh, Robinson refers to. Yeah, they get up on stage and they attack the Financial Times, as Boris Johnson did this week, or the Daily Mail even, as Jeremy Corbyn did last week. And then you've got you know Trump in America, the sort of grand master of press baiting. Yeah, I have sort of blind faith in readers. I think readers... Uh, smell shit when they see it and hopefully that means there's always going to be a space for properly reported uh, impartial accurate journalism well possibly but possibly the success of these sites indicate that people actually quite like a diet of shit as well <laughs> you know, they want sites that reflect their prejudices because they can share them on social media and Perhaps they don't care if it's true anymore. No, that's definitely true. I mean, one of the things that people always say about the BBC was, well, if the left and the right are accusing of bias, it must be doing something right, which mm. is kind of a pat on the back thing to say, very complacent. It, but that was a phrase that people started saying in an era before there was an entire industry devoted to telling people news they wanted to hear. It didn't used to be a problem for people to think that, you know, people would complain the BBC was biased, but where else were you going to get your news? Now you can, you know, there's plenty of so-called reputable you know, news sites that are giving you exactly what you want to hear and telling you this is the truth and everyone else is lying. Do you agree with Nick Robinson's central thesis that the point of these websites, or at least the point of the politicians who are championed by these websites, is to discredit the mainstream media, to create the impression that what you're hearing in the mainstream media is wrong, is a lie, to their own political advantage? Because it seems to me that actually could just be a side effect of them finally finding a voice that says, this guy's great. And of course they're going to champion that. I think it's it's one part of what they're trying to achieve. Uh, they actively attack the BBC and other big traditional press. But the Daily uh, Mail actively attacks the BBC and always has. I mean, everyone attacks the BBC, right? But obviously the, the, the Daily Mail will perhaps uh, sensationalise uh, accurate information, but I don't think they would make up the fact that Laura Koonsberg was a speaker at the Tory conference. Yeah, I mean, that's what it's about. It's, it's not even so much about ideological bias sometimes as it is about journalistic standards. I mean, a story like that, like the one that appeared in The Canary, would never have appeared even in, you know, in The Sun or anything like that, because there is an understanding there of what journalism is about, and that maybe before we run this story, we should ring a few people, or we should just think, why on earth would she ever have accepted an invite to speak at a party political conference. Any journalist worth their salt on a mainstream newspaper would know that a BBC journalist would never do anything like that. You know, it doesn't go through any kind of rigorous fact-checking to appear on the canary. They it just, just slap goes, it online. Yeah, and exactly. It, it, and we've had lots of discussions about fake news in the past, including a, a great special, if you look back through our archives, so I won't linger on this, but if it was Donald Trump's strategy, therefore, to keep using the phrase fake news about the mainstream media so that lines get blurred and what used to be fake news, i.e. stories that are deliberately untrue to get clicks no longer means that it's worked hasn't it the general public i think now probably think of fake news to mean stories that are untrue as opposed to stories that are deliberately created with a political purpose in mind well yeah i mean he's successfully kind of obfuscated the landscape of truth you know if people in don't other words know it's now possible to say the bbc is fake news yeah of course because before. you know it, it's not even about accuracy it's about it doesn't say what i agree with my worldview is correct therefore anything that doesn't agree with it must somehow be fake even if i can't pinpoint the actual inaccuracies because there aren't actually any inaccuracies there one quick point ofcom published a news consumption survey earlier this month you know if you look at it the traditional news brands are still extremely healthy extremely well read this agenda has not brought anyone 
to their knees at this point. Yeah, it's probably just further, you know, if I can use the word, radicalising people who already had pretty polarised opinions in yeah. the first place. Yeah. The BBC still has a 56% share of the market. Yeah, I mean, you can <laughs> even argue it's reinvigorated CNN all of this as well, couldn't you? Back in Tellyland, ITV have announced a new programme to rival the BBC's Newsnight. Jake, tell us about this. It's after the news. Yes, both in title uh, and format. We've been here before. ITV used to broadcast a show called The Agenda with Tom Bradby. This new show is made by the same production company, ITM Productions. So it would appear that they are changing the guard as right. far as that's concerned. Okay. It's going to be presented by Emma Barnett and Nick Ferrari. Good choices. Both, both very capable. Ferrari's renaissance is sort of complete and Emma Barnett's sort of stratospheric rise continues. Yeah. I remember sort of being holed up with her in a tiny little press room at a no mark tv conference she's done all right since then she's done well for herself (laughs) yeah i'm sure it'll be very solid but is it going to change the face of tv current affairs probably not well (laughs) the question really rebecca is do you turn to itv to watch tv current affairs i mean that was always the issue with the agenda as well wasn't it? yeah i mean that's always something that they have struggled with a lot of people have been comparing it to newsnight but it sounds almost in a way more like question time without the audience questions in that they're going to be pitting people with opposite views head to head i'm not going to lie to me the thing that it sounds most similar to was my least favourite programme on TV which is The Big Questions with Nicky Campbell mm-hmm. it just sounded like two people with opposing viewpoints you know when you, you watch it and it's yeah. here's a, a gay Marxist crossdresser and, and a rabbi, and a rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> let's have them shout at each other yeah. you know it just it sounds absolutely dire but I will obviously reserve my judgement and it's not going to destroy Newsnight. I mean, the, as I said the agenda was on TV it was getting more viewers than Newsnight when it was on air Newsnight is a brand that's not going anywhere anytime soon. I suppose there's just also that feeling when you're on ITV that you have to have those populist contributors, you know. So you would see the likes of, I don't know, Katie Hopkins or Julia Hartley Brewer go on the agenda, wouldn't you? And that was perfectly legitimate because they were there to stir it up and be part of the debate. But therefore, it isn't Newsnight. I mean, immediately, it's just less intelligent, isn't it? It's more populist. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, that, that's what ITV is. It and has to yeah. do it in and maybe an there is a And maybe way. there is a gap for that. I mean, and maybe, in a way, arguably, it shouldn't be Nick Ferrari hosting it. It should be... Lorraine Kelly, you know, maybe there's actually in a way that trying to compete on the same turf as Newsnight is missing the point. I think they, they will always try and keep some credibility and, and try and keep that current affairsy feel. And that's why they wouldn't go with someone like right, Lorraine Kelly as a, as a host, I think. It'll be interesting. It'll be sort of Kevin Ligo's first di- toe in the water of proper current affairs. This will be his take on the agenda and I hope the show does well because it's it's good to have thriving current affairs brands on TV. And I do wonder with Ferrari, I mean, okay, this is only for five weeks and it's not even been clear if he's presenting it for all of those weeks. Yeah, they're but being a bit... Uh, they're gonna, they're oh, being I think they're going to alternate uh, Mondays yeah. and he's going to do two days and she's going to do the other two days. But Seems he has to, to get up at four in the morning yeah. to do a three-hour breakfast show that's quite heavy duty. You know, it's not a light breakfast show where you just play some records. That might work for five weeks. That can't be his long-term plan, can it? And I just wonder whether he's now looking for an exit from LBC, whether there's a sense that he's achieved everything he can, because he keeps popping up on telly. He's doing The Pledge, he's doing Newsnight, and they're all late-night shows, which aren't incompatible with doing breakfast. Possibly. I don't know. I mean, it depends on what he, he prefers to do. I mean, he's clearly built a real audience for himself on LBC and sort of, I guess, uh, re-established his name at the heart of current affairs and uh, agenda in, in the UK. But whether he feels he can build on that with the ITV show, then he may well be looking at an exit strategy. Okay, and if you were just to indulge me with the game then, who could step into his shoes at LBC? <laughs> because I don't think there is anyone that's an obvious heir apparent. Nigel Farage. 
Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. But that very much takes you away from number one breakfast show, doesn't it? Like that appeals very much to a core. Who's Ferrari at LVC? I don't know. Like James O'Brien, you know, he's big on Facebook, but he's going to alienate all the Ferrari fans. Yeah, James O'Brien is slightly more left-wing, I yeah. would say. I can't imagine Ian Dale really moving to breakfast, even though he's great at Ian drive. Dale's very good. Yeah, but he's too, he's too nice, isn't he? He's too centrist. He can't do fiery. Who's fiery? <laughs> anyway, just putting that out there. Uh, okay, let's move over to Channel 4 now, and there'll soon be an announcement over who will replace Jay Hunt as Chief Creative Officer. Jake, this is very much terra firma for you. Uh, you've got your ear to that terror. Uh, who do you think is in with uh, a chance? Well, interestingly, in that broadcast piece last week where they uh, ran through some of the main contenders for the post, they didn't mention one name who I've heard a number of times, and that is Danny Cohen. What is he doing? Is he Danny Cohen is spending the billions of Len Blavatnik, who is a billionaire, and he runs a company called Access Entertainment and uh, Danny is investing in production companies in films all sorts of things is but he here in the UK still or has he gone to he's America? still in London but okay, he's okay. sort of out of the spotlight yeah. he is not the figure in the TV industry that he used to be and the suggestion is that he would welcome stepping back into the limelight. And this job may well be the right one. I mean, there's an argument that says he could be the chief executive of Channel 4. That job is now gone. But, you know, he, he's got the chops. He could do the job. It sort of depends what his relationship is like with Alex Mann, who's the new incoming chief executive. If there's a good relationship there, he may well take on the job. And it's the kind of high-profile appointment that she is looking for. If you look at some of the other candidates, Damien Kavanagh has been mentioned. He's the boss of BBC Three. He's done a pretty good job of running BBC Three in tough circumstances. The main internal candidate is Ralph Lee, who's very talented, but was sort of always seen as Jay Hunt's heir. And Jay Hunt's not there anymore, so that's a problem for him. I got a feeling that Alex is, as I say, is is hunting for a, a sort of glitzy appointment and Danny could fit that bill. That's good. Thank you for that. Okay. And then would that mean then that he is still heading one day to be BBC DG, do you think? That's a good question. I I think maybe one day he could return to the BBC, but the BBC will hire a woman as the next DG. Wow, Mystic Meg, <laughs> right here. I'm not saying she'll be the DG, I'm saying you're, you're I, like our Mystic I, Meg. I would bet my house on it being a woman next. Okay, excellent. All right, well, there you are. Have an update. Yeah, good. Uh, more after this. Now, listen up, Media Podders. This episode was recorded at Run VT in the heart of Soho. Thank you, RunVT. They have 15 offline and two online suites, as well as a spectacular bass-like grading theatre to go alongside this here dubbing suite and voiceover booth. Listen to the acoustics in here. They're amazing. And if you just want to see a small sample of their work on the small screen, why not check out Billion Dollar Deals and How They Changed Your World? That's on Wednesday night on BBC Two. Edit your next show at RunVT. Go to runvt.tv now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Time for some news in brief now. Rebecca and Jake are still with me. And first up, the BBC are to remove references to schools in their online application process. Rebecca, why are they doing this? Basically, they have found out that they have too many people from privately educated backgrounds at the high level in the BBC. And they're trying to reduce this. And one of the ways they think they can do that is by almost like a blind application process. That's for the initial application process. So there won't be any information about schools, education. Basically, they'll be judging you entirely on your, supposedly entirely on your competencies. And then if candidates are chosen to go through to the interview stage, then they will see that information about their educational history. I think they're even withholding their name until the interview stage, so you can't go and just type them into Google and find out for yourself. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, Jake, that Rebecca used the phrase, too many people from private schools. I mean, it's whether the public think it is too many, you know, that the BBC should accurately represent the diversity and the breadth of the nation, or whether the BBC should just get the best people, and likelihood is some of those people will have had money spent on their education. Possibly. I've got kind of mixed views on this, I think. Because it, 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 said, it, said, it, said, it said universities as well. And I think yeah. if people work hard to get great grades and they go to Oxford or Cambridge and then come out with a first or whatever, they have earned their stripes and they should be recognised for that. They should have the credibility of their CV showing the fact that they've been to Oxford and Cambridge. Well, I, I don't think you should take that away from people. I mean, I'm a, I can't help but be partially on the same Who page. Did you represent on University <laughs> well, Challenge? I, you know, I, I represented Worcester College, Oxford, uh-huh. but I was the first person in my family to go to university, went to Oxford, got a first, and I feel like I've graduated at the only time in history where that, I haven't been able to leverage that shamelessly to my advantage. Yeah. I mean, I can see two big flaws in it. One being that by the time you get to the interview stage and they find this information out, I feel like it's at the interview stage that a lot of subconscious discrimination does happen or we really clicked with this person Mm. i.e. we have similar backgrounds but then also the fact that even just looking at someone's work history you're going to see the impact of of privilege there as well i mean but at the same time bbc can't really do do anything about that yeah so so i think it's it's well intentioned i think you know the diversity issue is so problematic for tv not just for the bbc but generally across the industry that there needs to be more radical action and this could be one 
decision that that helps change things. Well, if it does, I mean, that, what would be interesting about this is if people are being judged purely on their merits, whether they actually end up with more people that have been to good universities and private schools <laughs> than less, because there is also the reverse bias that sometimes happens in interviews. And I speak as someone who's advertised for positions and looked through CVs myself in the past, where you think, oh, well, there's a typo there, but they went to their local comprehensive and then they went to the University of Luton or whatever. So actually, I'm going to give that person a break because, okay, they're not as well as educated, but they've clearly got passion for this. Whereas if I didn't have that information, I thought, well, this is someone who's been to a good university, quote unquote, I'd think, well, there's a typo. Yeah, even I mean, see them. if you see that they've done, you know, three internships at great, well-regarded places, that is going to influence the average, you know, the average manager's uh, response to that CV. And again, that can be a result of having an aunt with a house in London that yeah. you can stay in free for two months, you know. But fundamentally, the change is going to come from making more radical changes much earlier in life. And there's only a limited amount that companies like the BBC can do. Okay, staying with the Beeb for a moment, and the news that an independent study into the gender gap in pay has concluded that the BBC isn't discriminating against women. So chill out, Rebecca, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) An independent review which was audited by um, PwC found that there was an average of a 9.3 pay gap between male and female employees at the BBC. But they found that the reason for that was because men were overrepresented in the higher up jobs rather than men and women on the same level being paid different amounts. So it all comes down to the fact whether or not you think that men having the overwhelming majority of senior roles is in itself discriminating against women or whether they meritocratically earned those. Yeah, I mean, it's a separate it's a separate issue and it's better for the BBC slightly than the optics of paying men and women in the same role, mm. different amounts of money. The positive, possibly slightly idealistically, that can be drawn from is that while the majority of employees in the highest grades were men, the majority in the most junior grades were women, which does kind of give you the hope that those women may one day be the, you know, the future senior management. So there is some hope to be drawn from it, I think. Now I'm going to ask you a question to which the answer is yes, it came out during Theresa May's conference speech. (laughs) And Jake, the timing of this release was interesting. Yeah, yes. Uh, It came out uh, almost precisely as Theresa May took to the stage for the Conservative Party conference. So it got slightly overshadowed in the news. Well, I mean, you could argue that. Media media journalists are still going to write this. So and it was on the front page of the Telegraph on Thursday. So the BBC has still had a, a reasonable amount of attention on this issue. I looked through this reasonably carefully. It didn't feel like there was a massive smoking gun. The BBC is doing, by all accounts, not terribly as far as national averages are concerned. And there are areas where it has said it's going to make improvements. And there's a couple of practical things it's going to do. They're going to ban same-sex interview panels. They're going to review staff pay every six months. The BBC, I'm sure, will make improvements. The one thing I would note is that this did not extend to on air talent. So that issue remains unresolved at the moment. There could be another cycle of uh, news about talent pay and the discrepancy between men and women. And we'll certainly enjoy that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it'll be featured on this fine podcast. (laughs) In detail. Okay, BBC Radio 1 Vintage. Did you listen? The pop-up station that popped up as pop-up stations do did you hear any of it uh yeah i've been listening to a bit but um i've been particularly listening to the podcast they've got a series of um spin-off podcasts which are interviews with people who have at one time or another been a radio one dj so you've got your bob harris you've got your tony blackburn that's really fascinating because it it really gives you a look behind the scenes about what was going on at the bbc even as far back as you know as the 70s 60s i think it was a success broadly speaking wasn't it jake it was trending on twitter the whole weekend we'd said on this 
podcast. This isn't a mea culpa here because I was always on the fence about it, but certainly some of our guests had said on the podcast, this is going to be a disaster. You know, Radio 1 listeners don't want to celebrate the fact that this station is 50 years old and everyone else just frankly thinks about Jimmy Savile and stuff when they think about the history of Radio 1. So this is a terrible idea. But actually... Lots of people seemed to get really into it, didn't they? Yeah, I thought it was a really good idea. And they did plug it on the main station. On yeah. Saturday, you had Nick Grimshaw co-presenting uh, the breakfast show with Tony Blackburn and, and, <laughs> and Mike Reed, which was pretty jarring, to be honest. I wonder what, <laughs> I wonder what young listeners made of that. Um, probably they were very confused, I'd imagine. Mm. But credit where credit's due, you know, they were saying... Uh, on Radio 1, we're celebrating our 50th birthday, which is quite a brave thing to do when you've got a young audience telling them how how old your brand is. Yeah, well, actually, I, did, <laughs> I was listening to something at the weekend, and I'm afraid I don't know the name of the presenter, but that's fine because I'm 36. The Northern Guy Who Hosts the Slot That Used to Be The Chart Show, that Sunday night, <laughs> five o'clock, I happened to be yeah. listening. And uh, he played his record of the weekend. So clearly I inferred they have a record of the weekend every weekend. And the record of the weekend was the first ever song played on Radio 1 by Tony Blackburn in 1967. And I thought, Christ, I mean, I'm young for that. So, you know, most people listening to this are going to be... What was the song? I knew you'd ask me that. It was Flowers in the Rain by The Move, which is not a song I've ever heard on Radio 1 in my lifetime. Fantastic knowledge. So I thought that was quite good that they actually did. I mean, they could have avoided that, couldn't they? But they, they made it song of the weekend. They kept it completely distinct. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see whether that reflects itself in the radios. Probably so not. One <laughs> other thing that I noticed as well, listening to Radio 1 Vintage a bit, is the amount of comedy they were playing out, which it just highlighted how little comedy there is now on Radio 1, you know, except in very broad terms, you know, if you say that scott mills is doing comedy slots or whatever comedy games but i mean they were playing out adrian just kenny everett stuff from mark and lard and you sort of think god they they actually sort of were a sort of comedy station at one stage as well as music yeah and there has been talk that radio one are actually going to bring back some form of comedy uh through the medium of podcasts so they may be about to reconnect with those comedy routes hopefully not kenny everett though why I just think it's a bit, you know, I'm a thing, I'm hopefully they're going to invest in some, some new yeah. comedians. Well, I, I don't think there's any danger he's going to do a new series. <laughs> uh, right. Finally, just before the quiz, Claire Balding was at the centre of a journalistic spat this week. So Saga said it did not offer copy approval. However, it did admit that it showed Balding and the agent the piece. I think they said, didn't they, they didn't allow copy control, but they did allow copy approval. They showed them the piece to check for accuracy. Right. That opens the door to all kinds of questions, I think. And the editor also said that they, she, she sourced more quotes. I think mm. that was the way they phrased it. Mm. So whether you want to read between the lines of what could have gone on between the agent and the editor and potentially Claire Balding is interesting. You know, people get fired for this stuff, don't they, when... when the journalist has decided to do it. You know, Johan Hari left The Independent, didn't he? Because he'd been taking quotes from other articles and putting them in his own columns as if people had said them to him. And yet when the agent requests it, this appears to be something that is possible within the industry. The, the reader's still being deceived. That's, you know, not what Claire Balding said, yeah, however it happened. It's a, it's a much more blurred line to insert this additional content. In a way, you know, obviously it's not giving you an accurate representation of what happened during the interview. But at the same time, I think it is it is 
actually relatively common within the industry to have that kind of, oh, and also she'd like to say this about this product that she's mm. shilling for. So the thing is, we don't, we still don't really know, may I suppose never know exactly what transpired in between whom. But the response to it, I think, has been interesting, regardless of what happened, especially Dan Wooten wrote an incredibly scathing, fiery <laughs> Dan Wooten? Yes. Scathing? <laughs> yes. But, but it wasn't, it, was, it wasn't bitchy, it was scathing, it was downright journalistic blazing about all about this very common practice of celebrities and their people asking for changes to interviews and he named and shamed celebrities who ask for copy control copy approval and those who don't and his point was that the kind of the d-list c-list celebrities are the ones who are the most precious uh whereas the a-listers tend to let you get away with more or less anything but arguably he and journalists like him have actually fed into this scenario because as as every permission is granted oh we won't do it in your house we'll do it in a restaurant or we won't do it in the restaurant we'll do it in a hotel or we won't it doesn't have to be just for us we can do it as part of a junket or it doesn't matter if we've only got 10 mm. minutes or we'll definitely mention the new product you're plugging as you slowly erode the journalistic integrity that celebrity interviews once had they do just become PR, and he's been part of that cycle just as much yeah, as anyone else. Yeah, definitely. And there was a, there was. I'm not in the habit of quoting comments on, from the Sun's website. However, there was a very, there was one that said, "Of course, A-listers won't ask for changes to copy because you fawn over them incessantly. D-listers, D-listers have to check because you're trying to stitch them up." <laughs> uh, you you mentioned that that sort of erosion of journalistic standards, but there should still be boundary. Copy approval should never be asked for and it should never be granted. And you should always agree those terms of engagement before entering an interview. Okay, Uh, there is just time. You'll be pleased to know for our media quiz. This week it's entitled Celeb Dac. Yes, the underrated, it says here, Paddy O'Connell BBC Three show is resurrected for one podcast only. I'll name a media personality or publisher. You tell me if their stock is up or down and, of course, why. It's best of three, buzzing with your name. So, Rebecca, you will say... Rebecca. And Jake, you will say... Jake. Correct. The winner goes to Hootenanny. The loser attends all of next year's party conferences. Here's question number one. Is their stock up or down? The Economist. Buzzing with you know the answer. Jake. (laughs) (laughs) Is this about trust in the media and Donald Trump? Yes. So, therefore, their stock is... (laughs) Up. Correct. (laughs) According to Market Watch, the UK magazine is the most trusted news source for Americans. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? That's because of the internet, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, they have an excellent Facebook presence. They really punch above their weight when it comes to likes and shares and starting discussions. And they do have a reputation for being slightly, if anything, right-leaning. So I think that has helped them, in, especially in uh, with the distrust of the, the lefty media. I think that's definitely helped them. And you mentioned Trump, Jake. What's the bearing of that, do you think, on this? People are probably reaching out for traditional news brands to, yes, exactly. to, to find accurate news about <laughs> Donald Trump. Exactly. Yes, I think that's probably fair. Uh, here is question number two. Is their stock up or down? The Mirror. Rebecca. Rebecca. <laughs> their stock is down. Correct. Why? Because Steve Coogan has just received a six-figure payout for all their malfeasance towards him. Good use of the word Lovely malfeasance. Word. Very good. Very much. And there's plenty more payouts to come. Sienna so Miller had one as well. I think Sadie Frost had one. Something in the, in the region of, was it 15 million? Double-figure million pounds sum aside to pay out all of these, all of these claims in the future. So their stock is going to continue on the downward slide. And yet, I think in the public imagination, Jake, people have moved on from phone hacking, haven't they? Completely. Uh, they haven't noticed that the Mirror are paying out just as much or nearly as much as, as News International did when they were still called News International. That People just think of the news of the world, really, don't they? Yeah. 
I mean, obviously, they're being reported on and, and we're talking about them right now. But I think in the public consciousness, the news of the world will always be associated with phone hacking. And the mirror has <laughs> kind of got away with it. Mm. Coogan named a few other people he said needed more scrutiny. Bonus point. Anyone remember who those people are? Specific are we, individuals. Are we not talking about Piers Morgan, are we? We are talking yeah. about Piers Morgan. <laughs> That's a great episode title. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Sly Bailey, Piers Morgan, Paul Vickers, Tina Weaver and Richard Wallace were the names that Coogan produced. Okay, here is question number three. It's the decider. Former Absolute Radio host Jeff Lloyd, is his stock up or down? Oh, Rebecca. Je- Rebecca. Yeah. Oh, it was close. <laughs> his stock is up, up, up. Correct. Surely this is subjective. I mean, if you if you hate <laughs> if you hate Ed Miliband, then it's down. Uh, isn't but it? <laughs> if you love podcasts, it is still up, well, regardless of your political affiliation. He has started a podcast with Ed Miliband. No one saw that coming. So, well, so Jeff Lloyd left Absolute Radio. Yes, and then he did a podcast with Annabelle Port, which I think you very much would have seen coming. I did not expect him to simultaneously launch a banter-based show with the former leader of the Labour Party. Yeah, it's called Reasons to be Cheerful. Uh, It's about kind of big ideas that might change the world. But as you say, it does kind of go out into banterous asides. Um, They've got great chemistry. Ed Miliband is very funny. He's obviously, you know, he's found something that he's good at after his departure as Labour Party leader. Uh, A lot of people said when he stood in for Jeremy Vine earlier this year on Radio 2, he Mm. got a lot of praise, especially for a segment on sounds of toilets flushing so he's carrying that talent over to the podcast world and I think the result is really excellent regardless of your political affiliation have you listened to Jake I I listened to a little bit yeah it's amazing isn't it because he was never really regarded as a great orator and he sort of reinvented himself as this face of radio hasn't he that's partly because he's allowing his proper personality to shine through and he's clearly a a decent man who's got a really good sense of humour excellent well with that we've uh, got a draw haven't we because I gave bonus point to Jake actually mm. so well done both of you <laughs> what did I get a bonus point for you, Trump you named no you named some of the uh, de- well, you said we're not talking about Piers oh, Morgan are we <laughs> that was a bonus point um, <laughs> uh, so anyway it's a draw I make the rules uh, that's it for our show for today my thanks to Jake Cantor and to Rebecca Gilly you can catch up with previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free no paywall here folks on our website the media podcast If you enjoy the show and you want to keep us on the air and get an entire episode of this podcast dedicated to you, imagine, imagine me saying your name. It's exciting, isn't it? Go to themediapodcast.com slash donate and give like the world is ending. I've been Ollie Mann. The producer is Matt Hill, the media podcast, a PPM production. And until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye.